Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask in this very moment that you would open our eyes to see you in the face of all that is broken, in the face of all that is wrong, in the very face of terror and wickedness. Open our eyes to see your beauty, your love, your faithfulness. Give us grace to not be like those who honor you with their lips, but their hearts are in a different place, far from you, thinking of something else, being somewhere else, not being in this moment with you, near to you, knowing you. Oh God, pour out grace upon us that we might know you, know your nearness, which is our good, and cause the light of your face to shine on us with all the beauty and goodness of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Orlando terror attack was the deadliest mass shooting in U.S. history. Nearly 50 people died, 53 people injured, and it was, it stands as the deadliest incident of violence against the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender community ever in America. Just let that land on you. How should Christians respond? Will Christians respond the same way as others in our culture? The answer is yes and no. Yes, we will respond in ways that are like others in our culture because we have beliefs that we hold in common with others in our culture. So in, in some of our response, it will look the same because we hold some of the same convictions. But our response will also be different because we hold certain beliefs that are distinctively different than those in our culture. We believe that this response will be a bridge that is like those in our culture, but also the claim that our response will be deeper. It will be fuller with truth. We believe that. So what would that look like? Let me give you an example of someone's response that's, that's not a Christian, but whose response will, will be in common with us. So this week I read the response by the Prime Minister of Israel. He said this, quote, regimes and terrorist organizations around the world ruthlessly persecute the LGBT community. In Syria, ISIS throws gays off rooftops. In Iran, 
The regime hangs gays from cranes. This week's shooting wasn't merely an attack on the LGBT community, it was an attack on all of us, on our common values of freedom and diversity and choice. Radical Islamist terror makes no distinction between shades of infidel. This week it was gays in Orlando. A few days before that it was Jews in Tel Aviv. Before that it was music fans in Paris, travelers in Brussels, Yazidis in Iraq, community workers in San Bernardino, Christians and journalists in Syria. All of us are targets. Still, the Prime Minister, we believe that all people are created in the image of God. ISIS, by contrast, believes that all people who aren't just like them deserve to die. We need to stand united, resolute in the belief that all people, regardless of their sexual orientation, regardless of their race, regardless of their ethnicity, all people deserve respect, deserve dignity. And as Christians, we hear that and say yes. We say yes that people deserve dignity. We're not saying that anyone, that we wish on anyone that they would be hung from a crane or involved in a mass shooting. And I'm so suspicious of, of some Christian talk I hear that looks at what happened in Orlando and is just tempted to say smugly, triumphalistically, they got what they deserve. You'll never hear me say that. Never. We believe that all people created in the image of God deserve dignity. We agree with that. We are, as Christians, going to uphold other things and say, well, that should extend, that, that deserving of dignity should also extend to unborn babies in the womb. We want to be totally consistent in that belief, but we are not going to be like others who speak so flippantly about these things. And what is going to be distinctively Christian about our response? What's going to be different than, than those who say, yeah, we, we're praying. We're praying in these moments of terror we're praying that we'd stand together and have solidarity, and that's good. We're praying too. But what does that look like that's distinctively Christian and therefore different? And I would answer that we see it this week in Psalm 28. It is a stunning thing that the Lord in his providence gave us Psalm 28 on this week. And the main point of Psalm 28 is when confronted by terror, we find fullness of rest in God alone. That's Psalm 28. When confronted by terror, we find fullness of rest, not in our ability to prevent it, or our preparation, we find fullness of rest in God alone. And the, the whole of Psalm 24 has four stanzas that help us understand how do we pray this way? How do we pray in a way that believes fullness of rest in God alone? How do I pray in a way that believes that, that shows that, that lives that out? 
What would a prayer like that look like? Well, there's four stanzas in Psalm 28. Each one has two verses except the second stanza, which has three, and draw some more attention to it. And so to help you remember what he's doing in this prayer, I, I used an acrostic, hoping it's not overly clever, of P-R-A-Y. I think they're all there, pray. Here's the movement of the prayer in the psalm. P, what does he do first? Point one, there's a plea to be heard, verses one to two. Then R, verses three to five, there's a request, a request for justice, for judgment. Three, the A, verses six and seven, there's adoration. Adoration for answered prayer, thanksgiving that God does here. And then the why, verses eight to 9.4, is simply Yahweh, our God, resting in him, what he does, who he is, what he will do. Plea to be heard, P, R, request for justice, for judgment, A, adoration for answered prayer and why it's Yahweh, who he is and what he will do. So point one, look at this plea to be heard, verses one to two. To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. When I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do you see in those two verses of this prayer, what's distinctively Christian as a prayer is that it has a a personal nature, a humble nature, and a very tangible nature. That's what prayer has. I want you to see those things. Notice in verse one, this is personal. The personal nature of prayer. Notice that the first, right out of the get-go, he uses the personal name of God. To you, O Lord, all capital letters, Yahweh. I'm calling upon your name, the God that I know. I know your name. You've heard before people, when they get a certain kind of relationship that's no longer formal but personal, they start saying, no, no, don't call me by that title. Call me by my name. You can call me Jason. Here, David is not praying an an impersonal, mechanical prayer. He's praying to the God he knows. You revealed your name to me. I know you. You took the initiative to have this covenant relationship and you gave us your name. I'm praying to a God that I know who's come to me, come to us, made promises to us, who's invited us to come into his presence, it's going to be personal. And he says, you're my rock. I love this metaphor for God. This this solid rock, this awareness of God that can stand up to the weight of anything. You're my resting place. I can put all of my weight and rest there on the solid rock. You are so solid in your strength and your thereness, immovable. So I come to you. You're my rock, my resting place. 
my refuge. But notice also what he doesn't want. He says, don't be deaf to me. If you be silent to me, I'll become not, he doesn't say, I will go down to the pit. Notice that? I'll become like those who go down to the pit. What does that mean? The the ultimate horror for David would be to go to some impersonal pit of death and be lumped in with everyone else that doesn't know God. I don't want to become like those who just die and don't know you. This relationship with you is the defining treasure of my life. It is the distinctive thing about me, you. I don't want to be like those that don't know you, that he's going to say in the next stanza, they don't care about you, they don't care about your name. I don't want to become like those in death. If you don't hear me, if you're not responsive to me, How will I be any different than those who don't know you, that you don't answer their prayers? Our God is a prayer-hearing God. And he says, that's my conviction. You do hear me. Otherwise, I'll be like those who die and don't know you. Notice also this is a humble prayer, verse 2. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help. This is not the prayer of someone who is self-righteous and believes that he deserves to be heard. I deserve to be in a different category. You should be hearing my prayers because of how righteous I am. Remember, it's not This is not the song, the national anthem of the Pharisees, great is my faithfulness. This is a prayer saying, great is your faithfulness. I'm asking for mercy. There's not a hint of entitlement in this prayer. It's mercy. The thing that makes me different is not me, but you. Your mercy, your faithfulness. You are my rock. Notice also that this is very tangible. Here's a prayer where David is lifting up his hands, so he gives us his posture for prayer, lifting up empty hands to God, and he's lifting them toward a specific place, a physical place, God's sanctuary. You see that? Here he is in verse two, lifting up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary, the shrine of your holiness. This is language for the tabernacle that later gets used of the temple. David knows where God, in his mercy, has come to his people in the tabernacle, tabernacling among his people, and you have there the Ark of the Covenant, defining the relationship that God's made with his people. I'm praying there, based on everything that you've done, based on everything that you've done to have this relationship with me, all my prayer is going there. It's very tangible. He believes everything that God has done and has promised, and therefore, he has specific things in mind, not just some generic God out there, but the very tangible, specific God of the covenant and mercy. 
Now notice something with me. Why will Christians then pray differently? You might say, well, don't, doesn't everybody pray the same way? They, they make their request known to a God or God, and they want to be answered. Doesn't everybody do that? The answer is no. Christians do not pray that way. There's a very big difference. Our main reason for praying is not to be answered. You know that, right? What's the difference? What's the distinctive difference? People that don't know God personally end up praying mechanically, impersonally. So at the end of the day, God is treated like an ATM an answer machine. Like that's his only function in life is to answer us when we pray. That's not Christian prayer. You might say, well, what's, what's wrong with that? Prayer at its core is something personal and relational. The real problem with viewing prayer only from the angle of answered prayer is that we've forgotten who God is and how we should approach him. Do you really believe that the infinite, all-wise, eternal God is always going to agree with us in our limited assessment of things? That, that really we believe that I, what I think is right and therefore should be answered right away and we immediately at that point have totally missed who God is. His ways are higher than our ways and thoughts are greater than our thoughts. Tim Keller says that if, if, you, if you have a God that never disagrees with you, then you probably have an idealized version of yourself as God. The God that we worship is infinitely above us and therefore we don't come with our prayers and put ourselves above him and now have a demanding kind of attitude that says, what I pray, I'm asking for the right thing, do it now. We do not pray that way. When's the last time you prayed not just to be answered but to hear from God? to not say my will be done, but to pray God's will would be done. Your good, pleasing, perfect will, that's what I want. To have all of our prayers have the attitude of I'm a vapor. I don't understand everything that's happening to me. I don't have a right assessment about everything, but I know what to do in my confusion and in my fear and in my desperation. I'm coming to you, and I want you. I want to know you. The answer to David's prayer that we're going to see in two more stanzas, track with me about this. He says he's helped by God because God heard the voice of his prayer. You really think he, he always got everything exactly the way that he answered or he asked for it? He's wanting to be upheld by God personally, to be carried, to be shepherded. Not to treat God like a vending machine or an ATM, as some kind of answer machine in prayer, it's not humble. Here's why it's not humble. When non-Christians don't humble themselves before God 
and ask God to reveal his will, they come close to being demanding of God and believe that their way is better and their wisdom is higher and God should somehow submit to their understanding. And the real problem, and I've seen this so many times, this is so tragic to me. If you're an unbeliever, please hear this. I just wanna warn you away from this cliff. So many times, because we've put ourselves above God, we therefore put ourselves in a position to judge God if he doesn't do what we ask, if we don't get what we want. We become like a hair-trigger critic, ready to doubt God, ready to judge God, ready to say, you didn't give me what I wanted, without coming into God's presence and realizing he has the prerogative to do way more than you're asking. In his wisdom and in his time, and to believe he's for you and not against you. So, the second thing that now happens in prayer is that after making his plea to be heard, he now requests justice. He makes a request. Look at verses three to five. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their heart. Give to them according to their work according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands, he will tear them down and build them up no more. See, this plea is the same one in Psalm 26, 9. Don't sweep me away with the wicked. This is a a prayer not just for justice, but separation, to not be lumped in. And therefore, this is just bringing this concern for justice, not as personal vendetta, personal vindication, demand, do it now. It's just entrusting all of this judicial sentiment that we feel for what's evil and wrong in the universe and leaving it with God and saying, you take care of that. You put a stop to that take account of it, and then bring it to account for your judgment throne. Deal with it. This is leaving room for the vengeance of God by leaving it with God. Notice this is not a self-centered prayer of vindication or retribution. This is a God-centered prayer for justice, for God to perfectly carry this out. And therefore, here he is saying that what's wrong with these people is that they don't love God, and they don't love his ways. They pretend when it comes to peace, but work evil. Notice all the emphasis on the external action, like the word work. They are workers of evil, their work, evil of their deeds, work of their hands. He's asking the God of the universe to put the gavel down and bring this to account. And he's saying, with utter certainty of conviction, not, I know when you're gonna do this, God, he says, no, every Tower of Babel, 
that humanity and its wickedness builds, you will tear down. I don't know when, but I know you will. And so I'm giving that to you. A request for justice is a prayer in which we take all of that emotion about the the longing for things to be made right and we give it to God and say, do it. Do what you said you would do. Act according to your character. Not a question of what, but when. And now notice, in the third stanza, this is the A, so P, plea to be heard, R, request for justice. Now A, adoration for answered prayer. Now look at the answer, verses six and seven. Blessed be the Lord, why? For he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. It doesn't tell you anything else about what, what happened to the people that were acting with injustice, that were acting with wickedness. It doesn't tell you anything about them. All he says is, praise to you, you hear me. You heard me. You have helped me. You have held me up. That's the answer. It's a relational answer. God, you're real. You're with me. You hear me, you're for me, you hold me up. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults and my, with my song I give thanks to them. My heart trusts and my heart is helped. He doesn't say, here's what happened to my adversaries. Here's what happened to my heart. He was so helped and held up by him. I'm praising him. I'm giving him thanksgiving at the core of every Christian prayer. From the heart, it's thanksgiving. It's Philippians 4, where we make our requests known with thanksgiving, knowing that he hears us, seeing what he's already done for us in the cross, reveling in this relationship and knowing because of Christ, you've heard me, and you have an answer that's probably way better than what I'm even asking for. Thank you. I find my heart helped. Not when I get what I want, what I'm asking for right away, but when I know you, when I see you, when I'm held up by you. And notice that prayer is not just something you do with your lips, something that happens in the heart. Have you known this about Christian worship and Christian prayer? Usually in a worship service, I'll end up doing like what the old song says, then sings my soul. I'll sing for a couple of stanzas without anything coming out of my mouth. Just your soul sings as your heart's engaged with it, loving what you're singing. You're almost just speechless, but you're still singing. Your soul is doing it. So David's saying, my heart is praying to you, and it's helped, and it's held up. Notice that Christian prayer is the opposite of religious people like the Pharisees, who did a lot with their lips. Honor me with their lips, but their heart, far from me. It's somewhere else. It's delighting somewhere else. No, Christian prayer, God, you have my heart. You're the help of my heart. You're the strength of my heart. 
You're the shield for my soul. I have so much to thank you for. Then notice the last stanza, point four. We end with Yahweh, with who he is, his attributes, his actions. Look at verse eight. The Lord is the strength of his people. He's already said the Lord is my strength and my shield, and now he ends by saying there's this relationship between the God's king and God's people. He's, he's the strength of my life and my shield, and you're just as much for your people. Nobody ever in the Christian church is more for me than for you, saying you're the strength of all your people. All of God's people come into the mind here of David praying, you're the strength of your people, the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Look at this. When you take fullness of rest in God, you start piling up the metaphors of who God is. Your strength, your shield, your shepherd, you carry, your refuge, your everything. I'm just running out of language for all that you are to me. And notice, this is a humble prayer, because unlike what I hear with people who aren't Christians and therefore they only pray when they have a problem, which if you recognize yourself, you'd pray all the time, because you are your own biggest problem. But some people pray and treat God like a calculator that's in a desk somewhere that you just pull out when you need the answer. You got a problem you're stumped by. And therefore, it's, it's like, I just need a little help with this. The rest of my life, I don't, but, but here, I'm gonna pull out the calculator. This is not David's prayer. He's not saying, I need some partial help, God. Okay, give me a clue, give me a push, just give me a boost, I'm at the top. This is not partial, this is total. Carry me, just push me a little bit, okay? I'm never getting anywhere with just a little push, all right? Carry me. Shepherd me, I need everything from you. I can't do anything on my own. You are my shepherd, my strength, my shield. I don't have anything apart from you. I got everything with you. That's what he's saying. This is a Christian prayer to the core that says I'm a worshiper praying, thanking you for all that you've promised to be for me. Otherwise, I'm nothing. I'm a basket case, I can't make it through life at all. How, how would we apply this right in this moment to all that's going on in our world? There's three things I wanna say. Number one, I think we look at Psalm 28, we look at what's happened in Orlando, and what should happen is we should take fresh horror over sin. We should lament sin and the disastrous effects of sin wherever we see it. So lament sin. Second, we should have fresh hope. Fresh horror for sin, fresh hope for the love of our Savior. And three, we should have fresh freedom in just longing for the final reckoning when God's gonna make everything right. Let me explain those for a moment. First, fresh horror over sin. What should happen every time someone is sinned against 
It should cause us to wake up and be resensitized again to sin and say, this, this story of fallen humanity in sin is a horror story. Whenever sin pops up its head, there's nothing beautiful that's coming afterwards. It, it is just awful. It is horrible. It's what the old theologians called the sinfulness of sin. Every time we see the horror of sin pop up, it's an invitation to not just lament what you see on the TV, but what you see in the mirror, what you see in your heart. If, if it's wrong on a macro scale, if you're supposed to lament sin in a mass shooting, it's also true when you see sin on the micro scale of your own heart, when you try to intimidate people to get your way, and in your anger, you become like a little terrorist. Walking, wanting people to walk on eggshells. We have the seeds of every sin in our heart, and therefore, it should be a warning to us. Every time we see it, we should lament when people are sinned against, just like we would when we are sinned against, just like we should in repentance when we sin against others. All sin is lamentable and horrible and not to be celebrated, and not to be dull apathy. We must come to grips with the fact that in this fallen world, sin is the real problem, the real issue. And secondly, that should cause us to have fresh hope in the love of our Savior. Fresh hope. When the bullets fly, the Christian hope is bulletproof because if somebody terrorizes us with death, the threat of death, I'm gonna kill you, we celebrate all that terrorists cannot accomplish, all that Christ has already won. No, no, you can't terrorize me with death because my Savior's already defeated that. We believe, we're convicted, we're convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor things present nor things to come, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else like terrorism in all creation could separate us from his love. Bullets can't separate me from his love, my Savior defeated death. So therefore, when terror shows its face, Christians celebrate, we're armed with enough hope to be able to say, I've got a bulletproof hope, an unsinkable hope, an unshakable hope, because terrorists can't change the one who loves me whose love is stronger than death. And therefore, at this point, let me try to be so clear about this. I don't want to hear anybody at Bethlehem ever respond smugly, self-righteously, cavalierly to what happens when people get sinned against 
if they're non-Christians, I hear people saying things like, well, they got what they deserved. I'm suspicious of anybody that can talk about hell in a cavalier way. You don't know what you're talking about if you talk that way. There's no way. I want to say, if you have a, a church shooting like, like what's happened, and a shooting that happens in Orlando with, with people that weren't Christian, you know what? I say, which one do we grieve more? Which one do we lament more? We lament more those who die and have to meet Jesus and aren't ready for it. That's what we lament more. We, we look at what happens in a church shooting and we say, with grieving, we grieve like those who have hope because Jesus already conquered death. How can you look smugly at a situation, a horror story like that, where people who weren't ready to stand before the judgment seat of Christ had to? How can you look at that and not feel like, okay, yeah, all right, the terrorists got justice, right? If, if you're there at the, the, the courtroom, if the terrorist is still alive and he gets sentenced and you have the sense of closure that justice was done, what are you gonna do next? That's what I wanna know. What are you gonna do next? Are you gonna tell him, document for him all the horrors of hell and say, go to hell? Would anybody ever say that? I want to be first in line to tell them about the gospel, to say there are some things worse than death, namely eternal death, and there are some things better than temporary life, namely eternal life. We're not going to sound smug and triumphalistic when we talk about the problem of hell. Paul said, Philippians 3.18, I've told you, like I often have, of people who walk as enemies of the cross with tears. I'm suspicious of anyone who can talk about hell without tears. There ought never be an occasion for anyone to treat hell like their own personal threat to someone. Like I told you so. The Christian calling, hear me, the Christian calling is so much higher, so much better, because what we're saying to this world is we got something way better. We got something way better for terrorists than stewing in hate. And we got something way better for LGBT than marching in a pride parade. We've got abiding in the love of Christ. Come jump into that ocean with us. Our calling is not to stew in hate, but to bask in his love and to have the very clear word coming out of our mouth. What we want most for you is to know the love of Jesus. We want you to find him. We want you to know him. We want to say fullness of rest, fullness of life. That's what we want for you. Hell is God's judgment, yes. Not our threat. Our plea and prayer and preaching are that they might come to know the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of the love of Christ which surpasses 
knowledge. That's what we're about. And you might say to me, in this moment, you might say to me, well, wait a minute. We can delight in a display of perfect justice, can't we? And I say, show me where that happens. And if you're reading the Bible, you'll say, well, look at Revelation 19, right? The saints in glory are able to praise God as the smoke of torment goes out forever and ever. I'll tell you this, I think we have the intellectual capacity to understand a display of perfect justice and not in our fallenness and emotional capacity to feel it now and to want anyone to have eternal torment, to want anybody, wish upon anybody that they would ever be in a, in a horror movie that's worse than any other horror movie ever that lasts longer, that's is forever. There's no closing credits. It's real, not fake, not acted. We theoretically know one day God is going to be glorified in perfect justice, but we don't have the emotional capacity to talk about it now with knowledge of what's coming without tears, or we shouldn't say anything about it. If you don't have the heart that says, well, look a little bit over the brink of what hell would be like, look a little bit over the brink of what heaven would be like, I want that for you. John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, I'm ready this time. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. That's the heart that our Savior has for us. And we wanna rest there, fullness of rest there. And what the Christian church is saying to every other sinner is come rest there. Dive in to that bottomless ocean with me. That's what I want for you. Come in where there's no greater love than this. In the world, there's hate. In the world, they're talking about fullness of life being found in freedom of sexual rebellion. No, 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 no. Life and love are found here. Turn the sign around. Eternal life is actually this way, to Jesus. And therefore, if, if you are someone who struggles with same-sex attraction, let it be heard loud and clear. If you feel like, you know what, I've just got similar struggles to them, so you identify with that. Don't let anybody cause you to think that your struggles are your identity. You may have similar struggles, but you're defined by the love of your Savior. 
And in this church, we're not looking at anybody with same-sex desire and saying, go march in some parade, you belong there. You belong here in the love of Christ, abiding with us, that is your identity. We believe that about you. No one's looking down at you because if anybody here were to be somebody who was somebody because they have no struggles, they're lying, the Bible says. We are those who are here abiding in the love of our Savior because he conquered our sins, not because we no longer struggle with sin. And therefore, I just want to help you so much this week. How do I abide in his love? It's so hard to do, isn't it? One of the biggest evidences of my fallenness is how hard it is to abide in his love. Just constantly doubting, constantly wondering, constantly going throughout life, not basking in his love, but forgetting that he's even not on my radar for hours at a time. So here I wanna just say two things about abiding in his love as we close and go to our last point. First, give him a chance to tell you. Give him the chance to tell you. Open your Bible and give him a chance. Here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. If you would know the love of Jesus, what it is, give him opportunities of telling you. He will meet you in the scriptures and he will tell you. Give time, give place, give opportunity. Set other things aside. Say to other people, I can't do what you're asking me to do. I have another appointment. I know he's coming and I'm waiting for him. Do you look to him? Are you expecting him? Do you allow him? Do you give him opportunities to speak to you and to let you know his love to you? Do you trust his feeling, your feelings about you or do you trust his word about how he feels about you. And then, not just once a day, give him a chance to tell you who you are to him, what your identity is. We need anchor points throughout the day that we lay down. And I'm convinced people like Daniel, they prayed three times throughout the day because you just need anchor points throughout the day, reminding yourself of your identity as a child of God and not just letting hours go by without him being on the radar, remembering who he is. And tangible, lifting up your hands in prayer toward the sanctuary, isn't corporate worship a wonderful thing? That you don't just have multiple anchor points throughout the week to have God tell you about his love for you, but you've got one during the week as well called corporate worship where together we get to hear about his love for us, sing about his love for us, remember our identity. What a wonderful thing it is to be together. Let me just close with this. We have fresh longing and freedom while we await the final reckoning. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. We have, like the song we're gonna sing, we have a verse one faith that says, whatever my lot, you've taught me to say, it is well with my soul. We have a verse two and three faith, 
of the song, it is well, abiding in his love. My sin not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross. And I love these hymns, they always have a verse four of faith, he's coming. He's gonna make everything right, all things new. When he splits the sky, and the clouds are rolled up like a scroll, the trump resounds, the Lord descends, and he makes everything new, and there's no more sin. Sin's dark night of terror is over. You have a longing for that. Sometimes people say to me, I just don't feel like I have an eager longing for Christ, and I say, let me help you translate that. Every time that you have a desire for things to work right, every time you have a desire for hard things, sin to go away, translate that. That's a longing for the return of Christ when he will answer all of those prayers, all of those longings, and we will say like never before when we see him face to face, oh, it is well with my soul. Let's pray. Father, I ask now, even as we sing, cause us to abide in your love. In Jesus' name, amen.